I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. Welcome back to the podcast. As you know, we are talking all things ESG for the fashion industry. This episode is an important one. We're going to be talking with the absolutely fantastic Nicole Rycroft, founder of the charity Canopy Planet. Canopy is on a mission to protect the world's forests and species and climate and to help advance indigenous communities' rights. And underpinning it all is this topic of biodiversity. Let's not forget that biodiversity loss and climate change are interdependent and mutually reinforcing. One accelerates the other. Absolutely. And this is really a discussion around what we stand to lose and how connecting, really engaging with forests and animals and wild places, how that is so central to action on this. And action is happening. In this interview, we talk about the initiatives of the UN and the EU on protecting biodiversity. And of course, we unpack how fashion is involved. Nicole shares the shocking fact that up to one third of the 3.2 billion trees logged every year for packaging and paper and viscose production are still coming out of ancient and endangered forests. It is absolutely shocking. But that's why Canopy's Pack for Good and Canopy Style initiatives are so important. And they're engaging hundreds of powerful brands on this. And actually, after we talked, there was some great news coming out of COP27 where Canopy had got leading companies to pledge to purchase 550,000 tonnes of sustainable alternatives to materials sourced from these precious forests. So it also they reckon it's going to unlock the investment needed to build between 10 and 20 new low-footprint next-generation pulp mills. Now, let's hear from Nicole Rycroft, the forestry champion determined to move the fashion industry into what she calls next-generation solutions that don't involve new trees. Welcome to the Ethical Fashion Podcast, Nicole Rycroft, founder of Canopy. This is the first time that you and Simone are meeting. Where are you? You're in Zurich. I'm in Zurich, eating lots of great chocolate, swimming in the lake this morning. Oh, wait, that sounds good, but there's a crazy thunderstorm, right? There is a thunderstorm coming through, so it'll make it'll add to the drama of the uh, podcast. Simone, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Nicole. I'm super happy to meet you because I know a lot about your work and also because you were a professional rower and I am an amateur rower and I admire you for your work and for what Kindred you did in your young days. <laughs> Uh, and I'm very happy because we can speak about biodiversity. Biodiversity is, is the natural world in which we live, the ecosystem and everything. We could say we have, the humankind has developed its own civilization on the pillar of biodiversity. And today we are, we are losing it. This loss of biodiversity is also facilitating the transmission of diseases, it seems, from animals to the humankind, just to mention something that we, we, we know very well because of the pandemic and all the rest. Now, fashion is really linked to biodiversity. The way in which we source our materials, the way in which we process them has an impact because of deforestation, because of the chemicals we use, because of, of the inputs, the animals. 
Just think about the microplastics problem and polyester and all the rest. These all impacts on biodiversity. Nicola, I have a question for you. Does this industry pay enough attention to the problem of biodiversity in your opinion? Well, the quick answer to that is no, <laughs> but I think it's starting to change because you can't neatly split biodiversity into atoms or liters like you can with carbon and water. It for a long time uh, has just been kind of left out of the equation, right? Businesses, economists, they've really struggled to grapple with how, how to account for biodiversity. And as a result, they've just kind of left it over to the side a little bit in the too hard basket. But I think there is that recognition that biodiversity, it's life. It's foundational to life on earth. It needs to be a priority. And that just as you were saying, Simone, like we have 70% less animals that we share this planet with than we did when you and I were kids, like back in the 1970s, that we have two ecological crises, climate change, and the precipitous collapse of biodiversity and that they are both already kind of impacting uh, life on Earth. So, And the UN uh, have a convention on biological diversity, which was put out in, for signature in 1992. It has, I think, 168 or 170 signatories. So it means the global institutions acknowledge the problem, but it's the fact that not everybody in this world and not so many industry are not really aware of the importance of it. Isn't, isn't it so? Yeah. And I sometimes wonder if it's the word and whether it just seems abstract uh, to many people mm. and difficult to wrap their heads around. That made me think about how we also use a more sort of technical term, but equally off-putting for some ecosystem services. For me, I'm looking to connect with the emotion behind what we stand to lose and its potential loss of species, all the wonderful animals, all the trees that make us feel things. And when we talk about which is necessary, the measurable or the technical, I think there's a disconnect there, right? People just, I don't know, I, I guess there are two sides. Absolutely. Uh, we, one of our board members is Dr. Suzanne Samad, and I don't know if you know her, but she's, she's a professor at UBC and has done incredible work, uh, basically showcasing uh, that trees talk to each other, that nature is interconnected, uh, and that rather than it just being this kind of pure dog-eat-dog -dog world, which we've kind of been brought up to believe in the Darwinist theory of thought, that the natural world is actually full of these beautiful mutualisms and supporting of each other. And I've, I find that incredibly exciting. And there's a really powerful kids game, which may sound very simplistic, where you all hold a string uh, or onto a rope. And then, you know, everybody's got a different animal, like ants and maybe Claire, you would be, you know, like a spirit bear and Simone, you would be mycorrhizal fungi. And, and so there's- boar. Perhaps charismatic <laughs> megafauna. I wanted to be a wombat, but oh, there we go, or a koala. Um, but it's also, you know, there's such a focus on the charismatic megafauna that sometimes we lose the enigmatic microflora uh, and how critical that is to life on Earth. Oh. And so this kids' game is you have different species sit down at a certain time, and it just at a certain point everybody, because you're all holding a very tight rope, everybody ends up falling over because 
you don't know. We don't know enough about our natural world and the natural systems to know which are the, which are the pieces or which are the animals or elements in the natural system that actually make the whole thing collapse. We also speak about biodiversity in terms of planetary boundaries. Uh, mm -hmm. We all know that the humankind has trespassed already four of them, and one of them is biodiversity. The other is land use and so on. You spoke about accounting for loss of biodiversity. As we run an ESG due diligence system, how do you evaluate this risk? And then how do you measure performance against uh, protecting biodiversity? It's a very technical question. We've gone from kids' games to technical very quickly there, Simone. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that there's a, um, you know, if we're measuring our impact uh, uh, in terms of success uh, by the number of um, endangered species that move to slightly less threatened, then uh, we're not aiming high enough. Um, but this interrelationship between species health, biodiversity, the vibrancy of biodiversity and habitat or landscapes is really critical. And so I think, you know, metrics that actually measure quality of habitat, the size of habitat that's being conserved and protected, the kind of inventorying of, you know, indicator species and the vibrancy of diversity of species within landscapes are all kind of important metrics. And I think there's some really good work being done by a number of entities around how to really meaningfully wrap our heads around taking something as, that's got the complexity and the nuance of biodiversity and sort of bringing it down so that you've got really meaningful measures. Should we mention here the announcement that the European Commission is proposing a new nature restoration law? It's it's for the EU as opposed to the whole world. It's looking at binding targets on everything from pollinators to wetlands, rivers, forests, marine ecosystems, and also even in urban areas, ensuring that there's biodiversity in our cities. So I guess the momentum is building to to seek to measure impact and to seek to restore, not just protect biodiversity in so many different areas and industry has to step up and take that on right whatever that looks like absolutely and you know i think the the scientific community are very clear right we need to be conserving 50 percent of the world's landscapes landscapes and marine scapes aren't they saying 30 percent it's 30 percent by 2030 and then 50 percent uh by 2050 by 2050 yeah yeah um, and so it's, it's under the rubric of nature needs half. Uh, so the science is in, and there's a very clear consensus and building movement of the scale of conservation that's needed to halt the climate crisis and to keep biodiversity uh, flourishing. Uh, the priority is very squarely on those landscapes, be they grasslands or be they forest ecosystems, uh, those that are still contiguous, largely still intact uh, and in natural functioning form, that protecting and conserving those is absolutely the fastest, the cheapest, the most effective way to stabilizing our planet systems. And then because we have degraded so much of the world's uh, landmass, that restoration is really critical. And so I think this EU uh, legislation is really welcome. It's when you speak, you make me think that biodiversity, the big 
chunk of problems related to biodiversity and this industry and the industry of fashion is, of course, like climate, the supply chain. Absolutely. Uh, supply chain is where the big emissions happen. The supply chain is where biodiversity loss is, is caused. So how can a, a fashion brand act on managing their impact on biodiversity in the supply chain? I ask it from the point of view of due diligence, but also on performance measurement and so on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. More than 80% of a brand's impact and a product's impact lies in its supply chain and the raw materials and production. Um, uh, so what brands can do uh, is they, like map their supply chains, find out where their suppliers are sourcing from. In the case of forest ecosystem sourcing, so paper-based packaging, man-made cellulosic fabrics like viscose and rayon or lyocell, uh, check those against forest mapper and then engage suppliers to actually shift uh, if there's any risky fiber we do that work with our canopy style uh, initiative where we work with 480 odd uh, brand partners and our pack for good initiative which is focused on the packaging supply chain really the best path forward for brands to mitigate climate change to mitigate their biodiversity risks and exposure is to really accelerate their adoption of next generation solutions. So these yes. circular, lower carbon alternative fibers. Okay, we're going to get on to next generation <laughs> solutions. But first of all, can I ask you to tell us a bit more about Canopy Planet? You mentioned a couple of initiatives there that you work on, but how do you work to preserve forests? And, and also where are there particular forests that you focus on? Canopy is a solutions-driven, not-for-profit organization, and we're dedicated to protecting the world's forests, biodiversity, climate, and helping to advance frontline community rights. Uh, we do that by harnessing the purchasing influence of the marketplace. So we currently work with just over 800 large corporate customers of the forest products industry. So many of those, almost 500 of those are fashion brands that use either a lot of viscose and, and other man-made cellulosic textiles or paper-based packaging. And what we do is we help them to develop cutting edge environmental policies. And then we work with them uh, as they engage their suppliers to shift out of high carbon, high biodiversity value forests to help really spur the production of low carbon next generation solutions and to actually really help protect forest ecosystems on the ground. And our work is global. We don't want to just shift the problem from, you know, Canada's forest to Indonesia's forest or Indonesia's forest to Brazilian or Australian forests. And so when we work with brands and producers, it's really about a global um, uh, commitment. Uh, and, and we work with a network of local NGO partners um, in Brazil, in Indonesia, across Canada, uh, in Australia, Europe, elsewhere around the world. Just just on that location front, I'm interested, are we able to say that there are particular hotspots or areas where fashion sourcing is a particular problem? I'm thinking about, you just mentioned the Amazon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it depends on the commodity. So different commodities have um, impacts on different landscapes. And so leather, obviously, uh, Brazil uh, is a hotspot. Uh, for viscose production, Indonesia uh, is a hot spot along with some parts of the boreal forest. And so definitely fashion has a heavy footprint in forest ecosystems and depending on which 
textile or, or material it is, it will link back to a different uh, part of the world. How does a company join you? And then what kind of uh, systems you put in place to monitor performance once they join you? Mm-hmm. Uh, so a brand joins a Canopy uh, by developing a formal policy commitment, and that's a public uh, policy. And they commit to those kind of three broad areas, a commitment to stop sourcing from ancient and endangered forests and to do that on a fairly aggressive timeline. We kind of are now working towards 2025, but we have a number of brands who have already implemented and stopped sourcing from any suppliers uh, that operate in ancient and endangered forests as of 2020. We have another raft of brands that will be stopping their engagement with, with suppliers that are operating in high carbon, high biodiversity value forests at the end of 2022. Um, they also commit to really helping accelerate the production of next generation solutions. And they also, it, and this is a little bit of an unusual role for brands, but they also commit to stepping forward as advocates for conservation. So using their, their purchasing influence, but also the soft diplomacy our reach that they have uh, in being able to advocate with decision makers within their supply chain, but also political decision makers uh, to actually protect these really critical forest ecosystems. How do you police it or hold them to account when they've made these commitments? How do you ensure that they're doing the work rather than just saying they care? Yeah. So um, that's part of the reason why we require all of our partners uh, to publish their commitments and for there to be a timeline attached uh, to it. And we work in quite a hands-on way. So we work regularly. We're having regular conversations. We're troubleshooting with our brand partners. We're checking where they're at with their implementation process, both on the shifting away from risk supply chain as well as, I mean, that's a pretty low bar to be clearing, just not having ancient and endangered forests in your supply chain. And, and, and so we're also working with brands around how are they actually working to help adopt and pull through these low carbon circular next generation solutions, which are really the future of fashion. And so it's through that regular engagement uh, that we're able to ensure that brands are bringing integrity to their commitments. With the Viscose producers, we produce annually a hot button ranking. Um, and so that every year gives us a very clear measure across 28 different environmental criteria, how producers are, are advancing on their environmental uh, performance. And there's an audit associated uh, with that. That's an audit associated to it. Nicole, you've told me before that we're chopping down ancient forests to produce pizza boxes and t-shirts. It's a provocative line. How true is it in 2022? Uh, so there are 3.2 billion trees that are logged every year to make those pizza boxes and t-shirts and shipping boxes that arrive on our doorsteps. And about a third of that is coming from ancient and endangered forests, which seems crazy to me that in 2022 uh, that we have, I mean, we are smarter than using 400 year old trees and ancient forests and vibrant ecosystems to make pizza boxes and t-shirts, but, but here we are. And it really is time. Uh, and I think what Canopy Style in, is um, showing is that 
we can shift supply chains in years and not decades, which is what we've kind of historically been thought to believe uh, is is needed. Um, and you know, the role of linear extractive supply chains. Uh, that age uh, has come and is about to be gone. Um, and next-gen solutions really are the future of fashion. Time to speak about next-generation solutions then. What is it? Tell us more about that. Uh, so next-gen solutions are more circular in nature. They rely on generally feedstocks uh, that are currently treated as waste. So waste textiles that end up in landfills and then degrade into methane or agricultural residues after the food grain harvest that are burnt and contribute all sorts of climate and pollution emissions or uh, microbial cellulose that's, uh, that's grown on the byproduct of the industrial food system. All of these fiber sources are currently treated as waste. And in nature, there's, there's no such thing as waste. It's totally a human construct. Um, and so next-gen solutions are uh, basically fibers that are produced using these lower carbon byproducts of other processes as the feedstock. And they generally require uh, 70% less energy, 90% less water, less chemicals uh, to make into the pulp that then ultimately gets made into boxes and, and next season's fashion. How is Canopy then incentivizing the uptake of these solutions? Because it has to go beyond presumably saying these are options, go out then to the market and source some. Yeah. So, I mean, at, when we first had conversations with viscose producers about next generation solutions, we were told quite emphatically uh, by a couple of producers that it was impossible, impossible to make uh, viscose textile uh, using waste textile as a feed source or agricultural residues. Um, but to their credit, uh, four large viscose producers are now on market with early stage next-gen uh, viscose products. Um, and so it really is about scaling. It's about identifying which technologies are really the most promising, um, helping pull them through to pilot stage, having brands step in and adopt them at a pilot stage to showcase that they're available and that there's market appetite um, and to showcase to general kind of global citizens that you know these lower carbon alternatives are part of the aspirational uh, lifestyle, um, that you don't have to be wearing a Hessian potato sack uh, to be sustainable, right? You can be stylish. And then it's about really bringing these solutions Uh, to market at scale so that, you know, brands that are using larger volumes can access them uh, along with the kind of smaller luxury uh, um, brands and designers. You make me think about the big problem of Mitumba, as we say in Swahili, the huge amount of secondhand clothes and, and secondhand textiles that reach Eastern Africa, but also Western Africa and Ghana, they call it in a different way there. And the fact that probably we could strike a partnership in between our organizations to carry out the pilot there, because we are trying, we are using some of these uh, products, some of these uh, quotation marks waste 
uh, to produce new products. And we are also trying to set up a new circular factory in Kenya to recycle some of these things into new products. But the big, the chunk of the problem, the part, the core part of the problem is to have technology and solutions and scale to transform large stocks of this incredible amount of materials into a new kind of viscose. I think this is the big challenge there. Simone, I totally agree. Like it, we mapped in uh, uh, an action plan for the acceleration of next gen uh, production for paper-based packaging and for viscose. We launched it in Davos in 2020 and, and we mapped globally, where is there incredible volume of waste textiles and agricultural residues where these new mills, these new clean, more circular mills could be located. Africa definitely popped, India popped, uh, as well as did Brazil, Southeast Asia. And so I think there really is, as we look to diversify the fiber basket, away from being exclusively reliant on tree fibers so that 50% of it is coming from these more circular uh, feedstocks, waste, uh, currently waste products that are causing a myriad of other environmental and social problems uh, and pressures, then that's exactly kind of like where we need to be moving investment uh, and building the new infrastructure. You do need to work with like-minded organisations. You mentioned before about soft advocacy skills that allow people to communicate this tough stuff to the consumer, get this stuff onto the agenda outside of the kind of corridors of power and start people really making that connection between trees and what they wear. What is the role of brands in helping you with your agenda at Canopy Star, which is science-based and about protecting biodiversity. How do brands help you get that, take that forward beyond the kind of financial and the product? Because it is about conversation, right? Absolutely. I mean, fashion uh, fashion is obviously about styles. Like fashion touches people's lives literally every day, right? But fashion is also one of the most powerful cultural shapers uh, in our society. Uh, and so brands and designers are so incredibly important and powerful in helping to build a sensibility around the importance of our natural world um, and helping to shift the social license uh, that we uh, that these currently unsustainable supply chains uh, enjoy. Uh, and just shifting the expectations that we have of when we go into a store, you know, that we are a able to actually make sustainable choices. And so, you know, we've, we work with 480 brands. They've, um, they're all uh, spectacular in terms of how they've really lent in behind the Canopy Style Initiative. Stella McCartney has, of course, uh, been a fantastic uh, partner and champion. Um, she's been an ambassador for Canopy's work for Canopy Style uh, since signing on very, very early in the Canopy Style initiative in 2014, very early in 2014. Um, uh, she did this fantastic, quirky kind of series of video vignettes about the commitment um, uh, that they'd made to Canopy Style in a little mini golf course. Uh, they, uh, she pulled together uh, the Love the Loser uh, campaign. So the Loser ecosystem is this remarkable, very charismatic forest in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia. It's the last place on earth where rhinos and tigers and orangutans and elephants all still coexist. Uh, and so Stella in, uh, worked with us to design a social media 
awareness uh, raising campaign, uh, which kicked off with Stella, went to Gwyneth Paltrow and ended up with Oprah at the uh, at her winter um, show, I believe it was in Paris. Uh, in 2019, wasn't it? I mean, what an incredible catwalk moment. And also on the runway, they had all of those, they had printed all of these comments from social media sharers and carers about protecting this forest, which most of them had not heard about before. It was amazing, really amazing in terms of raising the profile, building domestic pride uh, within Indonesia for the Loser ecosystem. Um, such a boost for our frontline uh, environmental defender allies. Really a magical thing to do and just connecting to place because I think for most consumers or most of us that love fashion, we're unaware that our clothing may be impacting orangutan habitat or coming from, you know, a caribou forest. Um, and so really her just leaning in to sort of draw that, uh, draw that link uh, was really a beautiful thing. And of course, you know, she's been uh, matched her outward words with um, action and has brought a lot of integrity uh, to how she's implemented her policy. How did you get into all this? Claire tells me that you were a professional rower in Australia, then you moved to Canada. Uh, how did you get into this? I'm, I'm interested in your personal stories. Yeah, so I grew up in Australia, and I, I don't know if you've spent time in Australia. I know that Claire has. Sometimes, but, um, yes. Yes, well, my grandmother had a, a love of wild places, which I feel very fortunate to have inherited. There's something very intense about being in the Australian bush. It's it's hot and so then the eucalyptus oils get released so it's very pungent it's noisy because of the birds and cicadas and it's just a very intense experience and i think it just gets woven into your fabric at an early age and so i've always had this love of wild places and i've always felt good god like it's 1999 which was when i started canopy or is 2022 and we are smarter than using 400 year old trees uh to make pizza boxes and t-shirts and I had a bit of a circuitous path I was a physiotherapist and then Simone as you mentioned I was an, an elite level athlete in Australia I was a rower uh, but I was always very interested in social justice issues uh, and conservation and I did some work on the Burmese uh, border documenting the link between human rights violations and environmental degradation. And it was really during that time, I guess the theory of change that uh, is at the foundation of Canopy's work really took form. Um, just recognizing that we live in this supply and demand world. And currently the supply and demand world leaves a little bit of a messy trail of destruction uh, behind it, both socially and environmentally. But there's no reason for that to be the case, right? Like, why can't market forces actually sort of be community positive and sustainable? And so when I was moving to Canada, it was like, I'm moving to the belly of the beast. Simone, it occurred to me that you must have a similar, I know your stories are different, but it's that desire to address injustice, but also recognizing that there's a way to get business involved. I know you said belly of the beast, Nicole, but you're now working with corporates because you see that's, Simone, is that, do you feel like that? 
No, it's exactly the same. We started the ethical fashion initiative in Islam. Uh, the name of the place is, is still Korokocho. It's in the urban uh, area of Nairobi. And it was a desire for social justice, but also the desire to involve the market and its dynamics into this struggle for social justice. And social justice is also environmental justice. The two things are closely interrelated. You cannot separate them. So it's exactly the same dynamics. I'm happy to see that. But but also the importance of involving the people on the front lines. I mean, that's something when we look about protecting forests, isn't it? Indigenous voices, not speaking for, working with, all of that. Yes. I mean, Indigenous communities, as you'll likely be as aware of as, as much as I am, like less than 10% of the world's population, 80% of the world's biodiversity uh, that's conserved is under Indigenous community uh, kind of lands and control. And earlier when I said... Uh, the belly of the beast, uh, I was meaning in terms of consumption, right? Like there's so much consumption that's driven out of North America. And so, you know, like that's where being able to lever uh, or leverage that uh, to drive positive change and building a bridge across the kind of traditional chasm that's existed between the business community and the conservation community uh, to help drive these legacies that are larger than any of us can individually uh, do. And, and just because, you know, I'm a professional tree hugger, Claire, I know you and I have spoken about this in the, in the past, just because I'm a professional tree hugger, doesn't mean that I care more about having a stable climate or clean water or fresh air uh, than senior executives within the brands that we're working with. Even in the EFI, in our code of conduct on labor, one of the points is respect of community and cultural values. And we have a performance tool to measure performance in that, that's a key point in the world of today. Completely agree with you. So we don't get durable conservation unless it's socially durable. I mean, even if we were to put social justice aside, which we, of course, never should, uh, but if even if you're just purely focused on conservation, you're ultimately not going to be successful unless you have communities uh, well-being at the very heart of it. Because, of course, if people are, are made to choose between do they feed their family or do they encroach into an intact forest area, of course, any of us would, you know, make a choice that, you know, was you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. And so conservation work has to be hand in hand uh, with building vibrant conservation-based economies that really do help advance human well-being uh, for the communities that are in and adjacent uh, to those areas. From a distance, it's easy to say from a place of privilege, don't cut that tree down. How dare you? That's for my children's future. But what do you do when your livelihood and your ability to put food on your table for your children today is impacted by someone saying, I'll give you this cash if you let me cut it down, it's it's such a, that's at the heart of it, right? Yeah. And so that's the end of it that we need to work at, right? Like we have to enable people to live with dignity to, you know, have uh, the kind of across a myriad of metrics for measuring human well-being um, uh, whilst like building economies and businesses that are conservation compatible, it shouldn't be an either or, uh, and it doesn't have to be an either or choice. On your website, there are lots of blogs and details about different fibers and solutions that you're working on. One that I wanted to ask you about in particular, I noticed that you've been working with uh, a packaging solution. It's called Relief, and it's a project oh, yeah. based in Ukraine. They're turning leaves into material for packaging. 
Now, according to this blog that you've got on your website, 10.5 million tons of yard trimmings are landfilled in the US alone. We're talking about how there's no waste in nature. I thought leaves would be left to go back into nutrients in the land, but we're even landfilling leaves. So that stat I find crazy making as well, right? And that comes from the US EPA. Um, and when I arrived in North America, I was really surprised, but it's really, really common practice that households will rake up all of their leaves. Uh, and every fall, they kind of basically put them out in giant bags and they get picked up by the truck and taken off to landfill. There's this brilliant guy in Ukraine, Valentin. He's now all of 20 or 21. Um, he started Relief when he was 16. Um, wow. Yeah, amazing, right? At a very small scale to start off with and then, you know, did it with a municipality and then it's grown from there. Obviously, the war in the Ukraine um, has been completely disruptive, devastating. But they have now started operations in Lyon. And so they're continuing to advance uh, the technology, which produces like really good quality uh, paper packaging. Um, uh, they have just recently um, been recognized with one of the Google Startup Awards. You know, what I love about talking with you, Nicole, it's that you address some of the most difficult issues of our times, but you always bring these possibilities, these examples for hope, these stories of people who've actually found a way through. And I think that's, I hope, what people get from this podcast. Simone, have you got a final question? Yes, indeed. Let's finish with the ESG and uh, sustainability in general, as this, this series is about ESG. What is your message to people listening from brands who want to make a difference? I, I think it's spectacular that there are so many brands turning their minds and their attention uh, to biodiversity and how to stem uh, the loss of biodiversity. Um, so I would say for brands, for them to be really ambitious, like set big goals, um, partner with organizations, uh, like Canopy and others, uh, because none of us can do it by ourselves, uh, no, ma no matter how big a brand uh, they are, uh, and be willing to really bring the full weight of the company, uh, the communications and marketing power of the company, the, the purchasing muscle and leverage that there is, as well as investment. Uh, there needs to be a continued uh, injection of, of venture capital level investment into these game-changing uh, next-gen solutions, as well as conservation economies uh, through supply chains. But what we also need to see uh, with next-gen solutions in particular is equity to help scale. Right? Really what we need is now for these next-gen solutions to be scaling, and that requires all hands on deck by brands, by institutional investors, and many others. It's still difficult to find enough capital to invest in ESG, to invest in sustainability. But what I do find really encouraging is that there is a swell in ESG investments, right? Uh, there needs to be more and there needs to be better product uh, available, like really, truly meaningful ESG investment products and vehicles out there for investors. And we need not just VC, uh, although VC continues to be really important, but we also need large scale equity. 
canopies working in this space. Big investment funds, mutual funds, everybody to pour money into that. This was fun. Nicole, thank you so much for joining us, but looking forward to working together. My pleasure. Such, such a fun conversation and there is much more plotting and scheming and doing to be done. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work.